Welcome to a very special episode of Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and I guess this week is the great Kate Sobrano. Kate has a new album out called Sweet Inspiration. You might have heard the first two singles, Hold On, and the title track. They bookend the record. In the middle, Kate is covering material written by some of her favourite artists, including people like Leonard Cohen, Carole King, Elbow, Paul Weller, The Beatles. It's a beautiful and eclectic mix. Kate is a very dear friend of mine. It was interesting to chat to her in this context. She talks about an album we released together in 2020 with Steve Kildee called The Dangerous Age. And occasionally through the conversation, she refers to Dennis and Robert Dennis Handlin is Sony's chairman and CEO of Australia and New Zealand, who is responsible for signing Kate, and Robert Rigby is her A&R man. In this conversation, we go right back to Kate's earliest days as a kid, turning up to watch a taping of Countdown through her solo career. We talk about I'm Talking. We discuss her experiences in lockdown. And here she is, Miss Kate Sobrano. Hi, Sean. Kate, I was going to talk about your new album, which I'm very excited about, but I want to sort of go back a little bit and give people some of your history before we get to the new album. Yeah. So the first time I became aware of you was seeing you on Countdown. And it's like you were the most exotic looking person on Countdown and you were in a band I'm talking who are completely different to any other band we've seen. And there's a famous quote out there, isn't there, that you guys kind of bypassed, was it Jurassic Rock and Pub Rock and went straight to this New York thing. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the times. I think there was uh, a heady uh, feeling like Australia was was starting to then be incorporated into the, the cake mix, the global cake mix, people like the oils and um, uh, Nick Cave and, and Kylie and a variety of other people were starting to explode because they were working with international artists. Um, Stockache and Waterman were a big currency of the time, but we weren't playing it on that game. We were playing it more from the following up on the, the Squiddy Pilliti, British pop. Yeah. Um, British styled, I suppose, funk. I can't actually speak for them, I'm talking, and I won't speak for them because it's so difficult to speak for so many different people who saw it in different ways. Yeah, I guess it was a collective and it was so so long ago, but it, it was definitely a band that kind of changed Australian music. And, and it wasn't just the music, it was the fashion as well, wasn't it? You guys were really on the front foot with so many things. Yeah, again, I think that was um, all part of the 80s. Like I think if we were to list the 80s, um, Annie Lennox, uh, Human League, um, David Bowie again in his probably his fourth incarnation of David Bowie. Um, the whole concept of fashion where fashion meets popular music, the contemporary sort of relationship between fashion and art, I guess it's always been there. But in the 60s it, it seemed less important uh, the way one looked way one dressed was more about what one said you know and I think then we kind of came into this 80s thing and it was just you know everything was on the plate I actually think that was really led by the UK yeah yeah it was it did feel very UK centric didn't it I mean some of those sounds you have were very New York City but Nile Rodgers etc but yeah, England the was the forum. and the that. experience visually, yeah. Because we were probably getting, um, even in Australia, as I recall at the time, I'd go and see gigs like Susie Sue and the Banshees. Um, you'd be presented with Boy George. These were the artists that were coming. Blondie came to Australia and, um, again, had an influence. But then from the pop thing, not from the deep soul R&B black thing, it was more pop. Um, and certainly the way she dressed and that was huge impact on me. And certainly a huge impact on the way I write music today as a pop artist. 
Blondie is kind of the deep, the deep for me. One of the great things I think about you is there's a wonderful bit of footage, isn't there, with Countdown where there's a kid in the audience that turns around and is willing the camera to look at her and it's you. And then 12 months later you're actually on the stage and then you're getting the Countdown Awards. Well, the added beauty to that story is that it was during the Countdown um, documentary that I was talking to the, the host and I said to her, I, I recounted the story of how I was in the audience and I'd go with her every Saturday, you know, for the recording of it and then they'd view it Sunday and you could see yourself in the audience. And I, I recall it was Hazy Fantasy and it was. I said to the, the host at the time, I wanted to be seen rather than simply just being an audience. So I remember turning to the camera, as you said, and, and willing the camera to find me in the crowd, like, look at me, look at me. And when they went into the, uh, the archived footage is when they then went and found the footage after the story was told. And oh, that's said, amazing. And here is the little Kate Sobrano with an arrow pointing. That's was, incredible. Was, just remarkable. Well, it's wild because where do you ever, you know, in our undocumented lives before social media, you know, you don't, and, and Countdown, they reused all of the tapes, including the first show I was ever on television as well. Hey, Hey, It's Saturday did the same thing. So, you know, you, you were just a fart in the dark. You just happened and then if someone was lucky enough to be there, then you became sort of on the level of kind of rock and roll law. Yes, um, so that was a really uncommon thing to have actual footage of it. So you started your pop adulthood very early, didn't you? You were, you were singing in bars and cafes when you were how young? Well, uh, it was as young as 14. Yeah. Um, I was definitely desiring to leave school and I needed a good excuse and I had four, three or four gigs a week at the age of 14. And that was simply because... Back then, you know, we were talking about a very unlicensed, un, a very freer society when you could go with your brother's chaperoning you if you had um, had an inclination. You could go to any bar or club and you could be there for all hours of the night and no one would have noticed. Uh, in fact, you would have been like a novelty and probably part of the, the beauty of the place, like an ornament, which I think I became an ornament for a lot of the um, major clubs in the city at that age. How freeing was it for you to then become a fully-fledged solo artist? Was it a case of you wanted to make all the decisions yourself? Well, if you just back back a bit just before the solo, because I was with two bands before I was with I'm Talking. Yeah. I had been in a garage band from out Doncaster Way called Expose and then from the club scene I'd met um, this jazz artist. He was playing on an upright piano in an old Melbourne club. You know, they'd have the, the, the dance floor upstairs full of Michael Jackson and, and uh, all of the, the classic hits from the, the late 1970s through to the early 80s and downstairs in a lot of clubs they'd have the piano bar and... I walked in and there was this beautiful player playing these 1930s hits, jazz hits, and Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald and the Hoagie Cats, Hoagie Carmichael. So I, I got to have my own jazz band and that's when I met I'm Talking. Wow. So I, I tasted the sense of being the lead singer in previous bands before I'm Talking. So I was a little bit sassy and I was a bit smug about having been the leader in the band, you know. Mm. And then I joined this collective, which was amazing, 
we had five top 10 hits, I think, in one year, which was stunning. Isn't that stunning? There's no other word for it. Remarkable no, it, for it a was, debut it was, album. It was stunning. And I shared, the, I shared the front of the stage with a lovely human, Zan, who um, we've become very, very dear friends over the years now. Like she's actually a really good buddy. And that's in itself in a whole other story, you know. Um, and then, 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 then we cut to your question, which was how did the solo experience? I felt like I had... I had myself back again, but it comes at a cost because if you're going to decide to be a leader of anything, whether it's, you know, packing boxes at Coles or if it's going to be, um, you know, I don't know, down at the Lifesavers Club down on the beach, the one thing you remember always is that you have a responsibility and that you're senior to the people who are working and they all rely on you to make swift decisions and if at the age of 20 or 21 the idea of making a decision is abhorrent to you, then I don't suggest you do it because you can't blame anyone if it fucks up. Yeah. And yeah, that you, must that never, you must never default to blame if you can help it. That's interesting. That's something people never bring up when they talk about solo careers, but you're right. It, it is your business. You're running it and you're still a kid. Oh, it's it, – it was actually the thing – that, that was most chaotic in my life. It was that um, I couldn't step and I didn't want to step into a pragmatic administrative world. I wanted to be free to exercise creativity. I wanted to be um, the enfant terrible. I wanted to do all the naughty stuff. I, I didn't want anyone to remind me the next morning at what had happened the night before. <laughs> Heaven forbid, and, and heaven forbid, it be your band because how much more respect could you lose than yeah. having lost it in front of the, the very people who are supporting and upholding your whole gig, you know? At, at one point, before we go on, I must say that Expose is one of the great names for an 80s band. <laughs> With a Z. <laughs> Oh, even better, even better. Now, you had the likes of Stockcake and Waterman and Malcolm McLaren trying to seduce you over to the UK to make records too, didn't you? I did. There was a bidding war, which was really exciting, New York versus the UK. Wow. Um, I think I came out a little less profitable for, for the exchange. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's a funny thing and you'd appreciate this because I know you and I, we've had conversations for years. Yeah. Um, and even in the time I've known you, Sean, I've changed my mind over a dozen times about the outcome of who won and lost in different altercations wow. in my life. Yeah, like, I mean, even in the time since we've known each other, uh, I'm talking reformed and I remember I met you in the between time when we were all un uncertain as to, you know, who who did what and when and yes. whose fault was it. And, and then suddenly we got reformed to do uh, the Brian Ferry tour and, of course, as adults you you just resolve problems. You You have to solve problems. It's the way that the world civilizes itself. You can't just sit like primitive man throwing arrows at each other from behind rocks. <laughs> just nothing ever happens. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I haven't really even had a conversation with you about that, but I can tell you one thing though. Um, at the time, going back in that time when I was with I'm Talking and I left I'm Talking, I, I was not set up for the experience and, and then consequently had to learn some very bitter lessons 
which only in this decade of my life am I at peace with. Wow, that's very interesting. This is about you. What kind of lessons were they? Was it sort of about you uh, working with other people or having to be a band leader? Yeah, being band leader, not not exercising enough self-control, wasting money, dreaming large projects but not uh, doing the discipline, not having the self-discipline, not having the um, sort of the... um, uh, the management skills and then employing people who were to a greater or a lesser degree um, as clueless as myself because I thought to have friends in that environment was better than having yeah. work colleagues. Look, I, I guess that's the thing, though, why you're a great artist because you've got to have the big vision, the big dreams. And you see it from everybody from, you know, the Beatles starting Apple to Bowie's disasters uh, with management you're not thinking about the uh, bottom line. You're thinking about creating a vision. You want to make new work to put out into the world. Yeah, I mean, that is essentially what it is, isn't it? It's it's your – I guess what it all begins with is a visual dream. You've seen someone else do it and you want to be it and so you have to sort of determine what's it going to take to have it. Yes. And, and, and so you go out there going like, like a person hoovering up every opportunity um, and, you know, it, sometimes it's like eating. You couldn't sit and eat an entire buffet of food. It would make you so sick. It, it, you may not even recover, you know. Um, but yet there you are at the buffet and you keep just shoving it in and you're just going, something's going to give. And, of course, it invariably always does. <laughs> even if it's just the seams on the side of your fancy Vivian Westwood dress. Yeah, look, I think we all know that feeling during lockdown. I think everybody's seams have been uh, pushed to the limit. Actually, it's very funny you should say that too because um, I have one of the few artists in the country probably um, went straight smack into menopause as well. So I'm like one of the <laughs> So in addition to having the depressions of being isolated, yeah. um, you know, you become an alcoholic on with menopause. It's not a, it's it's something that Vivian Lee never recovered from, as far as I can recall. How's your husband coping? He he, he left. He left and abandoned me to Melbourne when he went to Sydney. <laughs> I became um, this creative sort of, which I've always done in my life actually, even as I think about what we're talking about, how do I recover from bad things, which is what I think we were going to talk about, you know, of the lessons that were learned. How do you recover? Um, you you have to in, invent a new you and the success of the new you hopefully will, you know, erase the sins of the, the, the former you and you move on. It's very interesting. A fellow that works for your record company asked me what you were like and I said, look, she's the kind of artist I think that if she was stuck in a room on her own with no piano, no guitar, no recording device and there was a magazine there, she'd cut it up and start making collages out of it because you're always finding a way to create and that's what you did in lockdown. You reinvented yourself and you started creating in other ways. Yeah. Well, I found it very scary, the thought of uh, lost work, the unsung songs, um, I metaphorically speaking, and I don't say this lightly, you know, this is the cause of artists um, dwindling spiral is, is the thought that they may not create again or they may not be in a position where they could cause an effect yeah. of some kind, I think. Um, when the work fell off and it was for not just a year, it was like 18 months' worth of work so that you're looking at two years of a, um, an, an uninvited retirement 
and yet the horse still wants to play, the horse still wants to run, the horse still wants to sort of be in the race. Uh, it just went boom, right? And because we are in, we use the currency of depression and we use the currency of our highs and lows, all the volatility, all that sensitive material, we use it entrepreneurially and we put it back into our work. It's what artists do, you know. Um, but with no, no way to exorcise it, the only thing it can do if there's a debris of it is drown you. Wow. That's, that's pretty heavy. And I was and, drowning. Yeah. I drowned. Uh, I, in the second version of it, without getting too intense, I I'd got, you know, I came out of the gates with, like you said, you know, tearing up yeah. notebooks, making collages, painting guitars, doing exercise in the backyard. I was, come on, team, come on, team, we've got this. This is going to be grand, you know. You know, just stick with me and um, I'll show you how we're going to do it. And then uh, second lockdown happened and... I was thinking, holy shit, this is actually for real. This is quite dystopian. What's, what's happening here? I don't actually understand. I've never been in a war. How do people behave? Oh, what are we doing here? We haven't, we haven't got each other to confer with. What the hell is going on here? It was like literally what in fresh hell is happening? Uh, and then Sony came back, which was absolutely amazing. I mean, I can't thank them enough because... Um, We'd started a project which we didn't fulfil at the start of lockdown. It just went nowhere. And then suddenly Dennis came back in with Robert and said, uh, grab this opportunity and my husband jumped on board as well. Uh, let's make a record and you can sing your experience. Let's keep you aloft here. And we had literally, you know, two days to pull it together before the third and the very intense um, lockdown happened in Melbourne. It's remarkable because, you know, if you didn't have those sensitivities about you and the way you react as a human being, you wouldn't be a songwriter or an artist. No, you, you that, wouldn't. That's just the way it is. You know, that's the, the thing you have to carry with you, isn't it? Well, Russell Brand, you know, who I actually really enjoy listening to. I mean, yeah. he's, like a, he's like a babbling brook, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> he's just this, he's this constant flow of unstreamed yes, sort of uh, consciousness. Um, so one of the things he did say, and I understand this because there are all degrees of psychological trauma in art, but, and Brett Whiteley said it as well, if you have the tolerance and the courage to deconstruct yourself to the degree which is kind of a little bit dangerous, you might find a part of you uh, that you didn't know existed that is untapped and has something that is, is uh, this gossamer thin line of you. And, and, and it could be beautiful. But he said, but if you were to just follow suit with everyone, you know, behave, become normalised, do, do what the tribe is doing, then you won't ever really fulfil your purpose as an artist. I think that's interesting you say that because you've always been like that. And I think if we sort of go back to when Brave came out, the record is like, you know, has a seismic impact around Australia. Everybody knows the record. Um, but then you were an artist that's always prepared to pivot. You'll do a duet record. You'll do a jazz record. You'll do uh, whatever takes your sort of artistic fancy. How do you um, resolve that in your head about what is next? Does it feel logical to make these decisions or is it just something intuitive you feel? I would even hate to try to define why. 
because um, it seems dangerous to me to try to give those things words. It seems to be a compound part of what I is. I love that I am hectic in that way and I love that I'm chaotic because for, for, for the most part, as you know me socially, I'm a fairly normal person actually. Yeah. There's a very exciting part of me which is like this X chromosome and she, that part of me, separate to me, is, is thrilling. She's, she's chaos in a teacup. Right. She's the creator. I, I want to talk to you about too about your songwriting because you're in the Australian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Yeah, which you, I'm very you, proud. You should be very very proud. You've written number one singles before. Um, you've had many many hit records. I wanted to ask you when did you first realise that you were? We know you're a great singer. We know that from childhood. When did you become a songwriter? When did that come out of you? I think when I authored the music for an album that you and I made with Steve Kilby. <laughs> Oh, I, th- I think it goes way back before that. Oh, no, no, no. I was just trying it on before that. Um, no, because I was never steady about my, um, like I was pilfering things before without acknowledging where I was pilfering them from. I mean, there's actually absolutely nothing wrong with borrowing uh, inspiration from the greatest writers in the, in the world. You know, anyone who says they, they're trying to break the mould and do something, even the Beatles had sort of said, well, we were being, you know, Little Richie or whatever they were doing. And, and, and so, um, in essence, what I discovered was a certain truth when I was doing it in the service of others. <clears throat> As a songwriter, I've always dreamt that I was um, writing songs for a male singer in a band. And then so you gave me that opportunity to not only have a male singer but one of the coolest, sexiest, hottest male singers in the world, in my opinion. I still love Steve Kelly. And also one of the greatest friends and authors of language to do with rock and roll yourself who you've never, there's, you've never let me down or any other artist who you've engaged in um, conversation about music and art. David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, any of the people you've spoken with, I'm sure if we as artists ever got in the same room, the single singular thing we'd all have in common is you. Ah, that's lovely. Thank you. But That's well, true. Uh, I appreciate that, Kate. But um, I, I think you've shone as a songwriter way before the dangerous age and I guess you've sort of uh, carried on with the original stuff you've been writing recently with the new album, Sweet Inspirations, because you've got two yeah. brand new Sobrano originals on there. How did Hold On come about? Nina Simone describes her um, responding to the world around her and uh, – in, as an artist, that's the, the that that is your responsibility. That's your 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 yeah. That's your responsibility as an artist. Is you must mention where you are and and how it's impacting on you. Now, sweet inspiration, which was actually really lovely. Now, I haven't ever worked with Rick Price. I think I've met him once. Um, Robert had suggested that I go to Nashville to work with Rick. Excuse me, <laughs> and. <clears throat> And I've always wanted to go to Nashville, so I was keen on going over. And I've always loved Rick because he seems to be one of those steady players. He's living; he's been living overseas for a long time, so no, I'm not sure if a lot of um, 
Australian younger people might remember, but he and the and the people like him, Jack Jones, all the people that Tommy Emmanuel yeah. of this particular sort of cultural part of early Australian rock, you know. So he lives in Nashville, very lovely guy. I, I, I said I want to do a couple of original bookends on this album because it doesn't seem right for me to just put out a covers record. That's not me responding to the world around me right now. I'm in this place. It's a wonderful privilege to sing these beautiful songs which are full of heart and full of um, beautiful meaning, but I, I thought I need to give myself the opportunity to bookend it. And so I started writing with Rick, very soon realised that it's in, I'm not going to Nashville. This was second lockdown. We're not going to Nashville. Um, he gave me three chords and I said, this is lovely, Rick, but this is like a sort of like a catch and release kind of situation. I think we should just kiss and just part ways. <laughs> we sort of walked out into the dark <laughs> never to see each other again, which is actually kind of romantic as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he gave me three chords, which was sweet, in- sweet inspiration. Robert gave me the title and I started describing the world around me and I wanted to go to a quiet and solemn place, um, which... The started with the Church of the Trees. I wanted to put it out to nature and say, nature, come fix us. We've been here. We've done this before. Find a way to resolve the problems that we can't name right now. And that's the, that's the guts of the song. It goes, um, yeah, it's, a, it's the Church of the Trees and the forest song. It's all colour. It's all creation. It's the reason we all do what we do basically and it's all the reason why we all suffer just so that we can we can be a part of nature so those songs hold on sweet inspiration the title track they've both got your dna deeply in them haven't they it's your reaction to your yeah. life at that time when you wrote them yeah now in terms of recording the album you did it very quickly now i know your husband lee worked with you as well was it a case of you guys sitting down and making a list of songs that you thought would be good for you how did you come up with the songs you wanted to sing for the record? Well, it was sort of a gratitude project in a way to Dennis and Robert. It was, they, they were songs that were selected from artists we all equally admire. So Paul McCartney, Leonard Cohen, uh, even Peter Allen, actually, uh, Dolly Parton. If you go to the roots of these songs that we selected and the versions I chose to do, I really did want to honour the, the, the great pure love songs written by the lovers of great love songs, the people who really crafted them in a way that really cared. Dolly would always say, you know, if you're going to write a great love song, you got to make them cry. And <laughs> I'm good for that. And I was crying quite a lot at the time as I recall, just it was with the sheer, what are we doing here? And so anyway, they're, they're a bucket list that's a combined bucket list of all of, the, all of our friends. Lisa Palermo, who at the time at the head of management, there was contributing quite a lot to the choices and we sort of settled them and the only criteria was the only criteria was are they beautiful are they truthful will you do them well tick 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 we just boom and that was it now the videos you've released from the the album it looks like you're you're live in the studio is that how you recorded was it first take kind of thing in the studio we shot all the videos in real time the the videos you see are happening to the track as it was recorded and all of them are one single takes. There were no overdubs other than just the horns. 
um, and some organ parts. But the band and I recorded everything you see and all the vision was being recorded, which is kind of why um, it's not a very beautiful-looking footage and I wasn't interested in being filmed or photographed at the time. In fact, that's why I got David Bromley to help with the cover art because the thought of being photographed at that time just sort of made my tummy turn. It just seemed so inconsequential to the, I don't know, just, and it's only recently, only just this week have I started even doing Instagram stuff again. Wow, that's very interesting how that's kind of affected you, you know, physically and mentally, and as you said, spiritually as well. Yeah. Um, Bromley's a good mate of yours, isn't he? That's a beautiful portrait he's given you. Well, David, sort of like me, he's a polymath in, in I only mean not, not to blow wind up our ass, but meaning that, that he, he's very interested and he's good at a variety of different things involving art. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're the same. You know, we you're an author and you involved in the – well, it, it is. It's all the forum of the arts. I mean, if we were in the Roman times, yeah. it would be quite commonplace that we'd be trying all of these different things. The fact that we've come into this time of civilization where people are being asked to have to specialise solely in one thing, it's unnatural. It's unnatural because one thing leads to the other. If there's anything COVID has shown us is the way um, a skill set – transports itself into another skill set if necessity tells you that that's the only thing you can do. Yeah, it's selling people short to assume they can do one thing, isn't it? It is. And it's actually, I think, in a way, it stunts people's growth as an artist as well. But but David Bromley, I can see why you guys get on because he's such an inspirational guy. He's working all the time. He's always creating things. Now, I'd like to ask you about some of the songs on the record. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, You Do Something To Me, the Paul Wells song. I love that. How did love that come it. into your no, life? random. <laughs> yeah. It was my choice. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> because I think also because I'd come off the back end of our beautiful album and I'd been given this opportunity to throw my, my heart around, as I said, those musical inspirations that – um, that I'd had all my life uh, from everyone, from the McCartney-Lennon relationship to David Bowie, uh, you know, just a whole variety of different things we got into on the record. And sonically that's... So the album had this beautiful classicism to it, but I'm no Nora Jones. I I knew I had to dis- I had to disturb it in some way. <laughs> And during lockdown, the first lockdown, when I was being, you know, look, mum, no hands, and I was doing on the broadcast from home and I was pivoting and learning all these upskills and, uh, you know, <laughs> little Miss Fancy Pants, the, the greatest thing I came away with from doing the broadcast from home was that song because that was a request. Uh, we raised tens of thousands of money by inviting people to request songs yes. that we would do, Kathleen and I, every week, and someone requested that song. And I'd never heard it before. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Now, what about the Elbow song? Where did the Elbow song come from? Well, I've loved Elbow for the longest time. I think the song must be 15 years old now. Um, I seldom sing Kid is the the name of the album I think I had. And then I'd heard, oh, my goodness, I'd heard Peter Gabriel doing versions of it. Um, I... 
didn't think I could take it on because the singer is so heroic. He goes from these highs and lows and these epic sort of like octave, octave, octave changes. But, you know, if, if I think if you fall in love, you make those changes, you work a way to express love, especially within a song. You know, I love, I love singing um, Tim and Neil Finn songs, even though they, again, challenge me because they're never in keys that I can sing. And Sting is exactly the same, actually, by the way. Now, did you have a, a working relationship with Peter Allen? Did you guys sing together once? Well, Peter Allen, I feel my brother and I had a golden, and sometimes I wonder if it's like, I want to rub my eyes and think, was that just a dream? Right? Because back in 1980, blah, 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 and I must have been about 19, we'd yes. just released the septet. I had yes. just released Kate Sobrano and a septet, 20 years old or something. And it was this strange project that I had to do. I'm talking, well, like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm a jazz singer. I must sing jazz. And we did this record as well. Um, anyway. Put long story short, New Year's Eve, they've booked myself, Peter Allen, Whitney Houston, and Frank Sinatra to open Sanctuary Cove. And they didn't realize until Frank got to Queensland that he wouldn't sing beyond the curfew of 12 o'clock, which is a little annoying when you've booked someone for New Year's Eve. Um, so he was going to sing up to and not a minute past. <laughs> and so they transported us all up. I mean, it was the biggest wage, probably still the biggest fee I've ever had. It was, it was amazing. And long story short, sound check in the afternoon. We're sitting there. Peter Allen comes up to do his sound check and invites both Phil and I to sit around the piano and he plays that song for us. Oh, wow, Kate, how amazing. Can you imagine to what a the, lovely man. To have the author sing it to you, that's remarkable. I'll never forget it. No. I didn't have to do the gig, by the way, because they cancelled us. It wouldn't work to have all those people sing there you know, before, for, before midnight. It had to be like, midnight or else Frank's on a plane going home. How, how was Frank? Well, I mean, I didn't meet any of them other than Peter. No, I meant to see him sing. Did, was oh, it to inspiring? see him sing was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Now. I see things on the record like so far away. For you as a female singer-songwriter yourself, what's it like to go and inhabit a Carol King song when you're recording that? Well, I think one of the greatest advantages of interpreting other people's songs, especially great writers, is that you get to see the bloodline. You get to walk the, the sort of sonic story, as it were, and even learning the chords... I, all the inversions make me feel what it feels like to be Carol King. And so constructing songs, you know, if you wanted to, I'm um, sorry, this, uh, is that too noisy for you? No, no, it's fine. Constructing songs um, with Carol in your fingers makes, those, makes sense of those inversions. And, and also you can work out their limitations as well. That's very interesting. Yeah. So you're seeing where they're not going. Well, you see that songwriting is a very um, – you, you, can, you can get better at it, as you know, because we've worked together and we've, we've written songs. And Sia often says the greatest success in her career was when she gave up, um, you know, trying to 
quote unquote, write a song. And instead she started to practice writing a hit. Do you remember, um, in fact, who was telling me this just recently? Someone who knows her really well, Colin Hay, I think it yes. was. And there's her, her she's her, yes. he's her God mm. father. There you are. And I, one of my favourite records of hers is the first record that she ever made, right? Because um, it's all the things like I do. It's like all, it's like a little bower bird, you know, picking from the Lennon classics, picking from Leonard Cohen, picking from the, you know, Annie Lennox school of rock. But he said the minute that she made the greatest success and statement in her life is when she went, I'm going to fucking write a hit. And what you have to do when you're, quote, unquote, writing a hit, and there's nothing wrong with desiring to write a hit, I can tell you. Sure. But you have to put a martingale and you have to hold the bit tight in your mouth and you have to stop your head from releasing. You've got to keep yourself in a tight frame and you have to walk the walk and you have to finish that fucking walk and you have to end the walk. You take your bow and you take your trophy and you go home. (laughs) What a beautiful analogy. It, it's it's really is a thing, you know. You have to study and learn, and so you know when you're walking that walk with Carol, you know when I'm not saying she was writing a hit, but of course she was writing a hit. Mm. So was um, Neil Diamond at the time. So was Isaac Hayes. Anyone in the Brill Building could tell you there was a way to people's hearts, and they knew how to get there. Yeah, they did. So That's a why way mess to put with it. the truth. Yeah, but the interesting thing with your record is too that. Um, You've also put the soprano inversions on things like The Long and Winding Road. You've done a reinvention of that. It's very much you. It's written by Paul, obviously, but... Well, I felt, you know, like I felt there's a part of me, I mean, I bow down respectfully to everyone that's arranged and I think arrangement is another, that's another description for interpretation too. When you are in, in, when you go into the the space and you're invited to arrange something, um, I'd just done a record at the head of the year with Roscoe from um, the Cat Empire. So he's a, he's the musical director, Ross Owen for all the the strings and horns he does for Cat Empire for, um, What's the name of the funk band? Uh, sorry, it's just escaped me. And and a multitude of different artists. He's done all of their arrangements for their string sections. I asked him to do the arrangements for the MSO for a forthcoming record. Yes, wow. So um, when we – the bamboos, that's what I was going to say. Um, and so we started working – on this, when lockdown happened and, you know, we no longer had all the resources available, right, people were not able to meet, you couldn't discuss, I trusted him implicitly to help me arrange the songs. I said, we've got a week of, of, of pre-production, we've got two rehearsals only with the band before yes. no more people in the room. Um. And everyone, even at that stage, were nervous. The sound engineer who I'd, I'd originally wanted um, declined because he didn't want to take the risk of coming across town. He had elderly parents. All these reasons and legit of why we couldn't be together. So Roscoe actually, he's responsible for some of those beautiful arrangements you're hearing and taking me down the sliding door of because he knows me well. He knows my reference as well. Yes. He knows our love 
you know, the Janice Ian, the Roberta Flack kind of feel, yeah. uh, even the even the back the Burt Bacharach feel. And so he said, okay, you know, I know how to make the Beatles work for you. Let's just let's just guide you into that that space. How amazing. You mentioned Guy Garvey before and uh, from Elbow. He once said to me that uh, constructing an album is telling a three-part story over two sides, which, which I think is great. And I love the well, sequence of your record. What was the thought behind the sequencing? Do you put a lot of time into that? I'm never as tidy as you are, for instance, or my other friends, Roddy Bustos, anyone else who's in charge. I'm actually, I always kind of know that I'm going to flake out at the very final part when it gets into <laughs> the area of like <laughs> when we start doing all of the um, the choices and the, you know, uh, mastering and I don't know why, but I check out of those, de- those details because it somehow makes what I do as a, the live performer somehow specious. Like I get like, I feel like it's kind of undermining my truth about it or something. I don't know why. It's, it's, it's senseless because I should be like, I should be more tidy. Yeah, but, you, know, you, you write them, you sing them, that's your thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but in this case, I didn't, I, I wasn't allowed to default to that. I had to actually be a part of everything too. So um, we sat and for the first time ever, I sat and listened a lot to, the, to how they were lining up and made it so that it felt um, like I, I'd, I'd had a part of everything right and up and through and to the end. And I did, and I was very proud of that. Well, Kate, congratulations. You've made a remarkable album under trying circumstances. It's a mix of your beautiful songwriting, the classic great songwriting. It really is a bit of a triumph, so congratulations. Thanks, darling. Well, um, again, I, you know, without, I'm not promoting um, us unnecessarily when I say this, but I think that you've got to keep uh, the quill sharp, you know. You've got to be, you, this is one of those lovely opportunities to, uh, I'm forever learning. So this is an album I learned a lot from, for, for many different reasons. Uh, and then I'll go and apply it to more original creative things again. I think you and I have got a sequel to write. Yeah, I hope so. And I know you've got a, an orchestra <laughs> okay. album coming out and, you know, so many wonderful things ahead of you. Yeah. You just got to keep on learning, don't you? Keep on Absolutely. applying yourself to it. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end, Kate. Thank you so much for your time today. And congratulations on the record. I can't wait to hear it all over the airwaves. Thank you. Hey, looking in your room there, I'm reminded, I feel like I'm looking into Back to the Future. I'm sort of, it's like the room that belongs to, I know, it just, you are, what's the the lead character? Have you seen the DeLorean up there? Yes. (laughs) My, My sister gave me that years ago. A big thanks to Kate Sobrano for taking the time to be our guest on this week's episode of Time to Talk. She's a great artist and her new album is called Sweet Inspiration. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and we'll look forward to having your company again very soon.